Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Rachel Roth, the founder and CEO of Urban Skin Rx. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Happy to be here. Rachel, you have to tell our audience, you know, I know they didn't get to hear our pre-recording banter, but you are about to give birth, correct? Yes. No, I actually am dealing with contractions right now and technically I'm dilated. So we could even say that I'm in labor without lying, you know, during this podcast. (laughs) So this is a Glossy Beauty podcast first. We might have um, a delivery on the show this week, (laughs) but um, thank you so much for being here, Rachel. I mean, I can't even imagine how you're feeling. Um, how are you running your business in these like 11th hour of about to give birth? You know, it's, it's stressful, you know, in a perfect world, you know, I had planned on, I would go go on maternity leave like two weeks prior to this, but you know, it's just, that's not my reality. And for me, my priority is really getting my company to a place where I feel comfortable leaving for longer, which, you know, Some people listening in might be like, well, what are you doing so wrong that you don't feel that your company is in a place that it will, you know, can stand um, not having you? And it probably, you know, is a little bit my personality, you know, being a control freak and, you know, just some some of my ways. We also are at a really pivotal point in the brand in terms of um, just the pandemic and, you know, recession and, you know, definitely want to be transparent that it's not the easiest time owning a, you know, consumer good company um, right now. So there's a lot on the line. And this is a big week for you, Rachel, or actually a big month. You're actually launching a new product as well, correct? Yeah, we launched a new product yesterday, um, which is a part of our Pro Strength collection. Not everybody knows that we um, are a brand that has multiple collections, one that is in mass and drug that is really $30 and under. And then we have our historical Pro Strength collection that really stems from my medical spa ownership background a lot of really high strength formulas, like no compromises when it comes to ingredients and strengths. And this product is part of that more prestige um, collection. And it includes an ingredient that is really new and innovative, um, especially in the world of hyperpigmentation. It's called 5% cysteamine. And it's something that, you know, has really mainly just been distributed through pharmaceutical and dermatologists, um, pharmaceutical co- pharmaceutical companies to dermatologists for over a hundred dollars. And it's been really exciting to be able to make that product more accessible, make that ingredient more accessible. We're offering it for $48, the same strength, same results is, you know, what has been mainly distributed through these professionals. So that is really exciting. So Rachel, go back a little bit, because I think people may not know um, your story personally. And, you know, your road to becoming a beauty founder really started with your practice of being a licensed esthetician, correct? Correct. Yes. And what led you to founding your own clinic? And then obviously this line that's associated with the clinic that you saw as a licensed esthetician, I believe it had a lot to do with darker skin tones and hyperpigmentation and discoloration. Yeah, so um, definitely stemmed from a childhood 
of a lot of discomfort in my own skin. You know, I've had a lot of skin ailments from literally one to two years old. Um, I developed a large nevus mole on the side of my face that was, I was bullied over and then had lots of acne and ended up being overweight as well. And, um, you know, in junior high, I started being taken to UCSF Medical Center to see if there was lasers that could remove this mole, you know, without having to cut it out and distort my smile and, you know, the way my mouth moved. Um, so I was really subjected to kind of the cosmetic, aesthetic, dermatology industry younger than a lot of people would. And also started seeing an esthetician at my dermatologist's office in the early years of high school, which now that I'm 41, we're looking at 25 plus years ago, which is very early in the aesthetic industry. And I was just so amazed and really empowered by it. Like, I think selfishly, I was like, wow, what if I did something like this? I would have my, you know, hands on all this equipment every day and solutions and formulas to really make myself look better, which I felt would would solve all my problems if I looked better. And then also help others. You know, I grew up with a lot of empathy towards others not feeling good about their physical appearance. And so, you know, early on, I knew that I wanted to be an esthetician and help others with their skin. Rachel, did you feel a personal connection to like the beauty world per se, or was it really just a problem solution um, experience for you of going to the esthetician, going to dermatologists and figuring out what was right for your skin? Yeah. I mean, I always, from a younger age was into like makeup and remember browsing the, you know, the beauty aisles of, you know, I think it was like Long's Drugstore in, in California. Um, but I think it was more the attraction to actually the more medical clinical side of aesthetics. Like I remember getting microdermabrasions and chemical peels and even taking home some professional skincare, um, you know, at, at a pretty young age and just really feeling that, hopefully this was going to make my life a lot better. And I, and it did, you know, I started improving my appearance and I mean, it's terrible to say, I mean, by no means did my life turn perfect, but improving my confidence and feeling more confident, you know, when I presented myself, it did have an effect in other areas of my life. And so I wanted to bring that to other people at this point in time, you know, growing up in Northern California and in San Francisco, which is diverse to some degrees, um, but it's very different diversity than the South where I live now. I really wasn't thinking, you know, about all skin tones. I was just, you know, thinking skin is skin, you know, I'm just going to become a skincare expert. And at that point in time still was not really conscious of the disparity as, you know, when it came to the treatment of skin of color and the re- the lack of research and just all the things that have got really gone on in the industry to not be inclusive of skin of color, which, you know, as you mentioned, is kind of what I'm now known for. And what made you kind of have that come to Jesus? I know you opened um, the Urban Med Spa, I believe in 2006, is that correct? And you launched your line in 2010. So what was the What happened between those four years? Well, you know, to take it back a little bit, you know, moving from San Francisco to Charlotte, North Carolina, the South, um, 
you know, I think when I went to aesthetic school, I've always had a diverse group of family and friends that consisted of, you know, people that had melanin rich skin. And so when it came to my education of aesthetics, it was just, I'm somebody who, you know, just notices my environment. And I noticed right away that the school I was going to was very like Caucasian. And that was just kind of interesting to me considering Charlotte is not a very Caucasian place. It's, you know, very diverse. You know, it has a lot of like, I think 50% of the population practically has melanin rich skin. And so when it also came for me to do practicals, which you have to do, you know, service friends and family for a certain amount of hours to graduate, I would bringing my group of friends and family, many of whom which had melanin-rich skin. And it was always, you know, this kind of like thing that I would get from teachers, like, don't do this and don't do that. Darker skin burns so easily. We have to keep it very basic. You know, we have to, and it was just like, okay, but you know, some of my friends have acne and some of my friends have hyperpigmentation. We have to still figure out a clinical corrective approach rather than just massages and steam and, you know, cleansing. And so this led me to start to really do my own research. I started to order dermatology books. I think it was through like Barnes and Noble and stuff. I ordered Dr. Susan Taylor's book on RX for brown skin. And like I said, dermatology, like books on ethnic skin, just to try to figure out for myself. Cause my friends were asking me like, what do you think I should do about this? And what do you think I should do about that? And I wanted to help them. But in terms of me actually launching a business that's really specialized in, you know, offering safe and effective treatments for diverse skin tones, I think it was just started in school, got my first job um, at a laser center and just through more and more experiences was like, Charlotte really needs a place that offers laser hair removal, especially because I was doing laser hair removal and noticed that no places were really buying lasers that were safe for deeper skin tones when they actually were available um, or marketing it if they had them. So I decided I would open Urban Skin Solutions Medical Spa in 2006. And initially it was for all skin tones. But I think because I was marketing in a way with wording that nobody else was, like I would do radio ads and, you know, um, like newspaper ads that made it very clear if you had tanned and deeper skin tones, you were safe with our equipment. And so very quickly I ended up with a clientele that mostly had deeper skin tones because all the other, like the Caucasian white fair skin had a million med spas to go to. Rachel, you know, what's interesting is that I feel like you are describing to me my own experiences as a teen and in my twenties, and even now in my thirties of going to dermatologists and estheticians and being told I couldn't use certain products because of my melon rich brown skin, but you yourself aren't a woman of color. And so I'm wondering, you know, Did you feel a disconnect at first or did you really just find yourself saying, hey, this is a solution I can provide to so many different women and leaned into that? I think that I was just somebody who wanted to change the world. It was like here was an industry that, you know, I was so passionate about and seeing, you know, the impact it had on improving my life. And as it got more clear to me that not people who I loved, you know, weren't provided the same service that I was, you know, or the same, um, 
just options. It was just kind of like, well, this is my calling. And unfortunately, our world at times, you know, struggles with people who, you know, if, if an issue does not affect them, they ignore it. Or maybe they're scared or intimidated to help, you know, it, something if it doesn't directly impact their life or they're just ignorant. You know, there's all different reasons why people do not jump in to help, you know, others with issues that they aren't impacted by. But that just wasn't my mentality. And although, you know, to be fully transparent, me not being a woman of color, um, myself in developing this brand, which largest consumer base, you know, is women of color, um, you know, it has had its pluses and minuses. I mean, there is no doubt that um, the color of my skin has helped open many doors for me and has given me opportunities that I'm sure, no doubt that, you know, people of color would not have the opportunity to get. I mean, on the flip side, it, you know, especially in more recent years, um, you know, at times people have really not liked the fact that the majority of our brand is not a black owned business, you know, in trying to, you know, continue to position ourselves in this environment as a really strong ally for, you know, marginalized communities, as well as some of the, you know, just the demographics that we cater to and care so much about. Um, But it, you know, overall has been a really amazing opportunity. And I feel so blessed that, you know, I'm able to do what I'm able to do. But a lot of people do have questions like, why are you doing this when you're not a woman of color? And it's just like, I guess it's just not in my DNA to sit back and watch such a large disparity and such, you know, an unjust thing that doesn't affect me, you know, and just be like, I'm not going to do anything about it because it doesn't doesn't affect me. That's just not who I am. We'll be right back after this message. You know, in the last few years, I feel like this conversation around melanin-rich skin and, you know, shades of foundation for all skin tones or concealer has really come to the forefront. You know, this is not something that people were talking about, you know, in in a large way 15 years ago, 20 years ago. How has that sort of impacted, you know, the presence of your brand and people seeking you out like, hey, this is a brand that does do this, that is speaking to me and maybe amplified your message. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, the last two years have gotten a lot more competitive for us. You know, looking at different IRI data at, you know, Target and different retailers, you know, we are still, you know, what I would say the leader of the multicultural clinical skincare category, but a lot of people are now playing in the space. I mean, we'd seen it 10 years ago with multicultural hair care, and now we are finally seeing it with skincare, which is amazing. That's what needed to happen. And I'm so proud that, you know, I have been a part of, you know, opening up this category that had been so largely ignored by investors and retailers. Um, But I would say, you know, it's definitely been interesting because, you know, at the same time, I think that we are, you know, really 
offering so many great solutions for skin of color that nobody else has really invested in and done the proper research. It, it is more competitive. And when you take off just, you know, my esthetician hat and I'm the CEO of this brand, you know, I have to be on my A game. And I think one other thing that we are really trying to work on is, you know, we preach so much about inclusivity and I don't always think our brand has done the best job of truly being in as inclusive and inviting to everybody as we want to be, because this is a brand that is not only just for, you know, tanned and melanin rich skin. It's also for people who suffer from hyperpigmentation, which affects all skin tones. You know, I mean, I don't have melanin-rich skin, but my products, I use my products every day. And it's been really interesting to get a hold of some of the data that comes out of Ulta on our brand is the mix of consumers there is very different than our DTC. You know, it's actually a lot more diverse than our DTC. And so, and we've done some consumer surveys to, to really find that there are people who are not our current audience and have been interested in our brand, but have turned away from it because they're like, I don't have deep skin. You know, maybe this isn't for me. So I think you'll see some changes with urban skin RX of really trying to appeal to a larger audience of people really concerned with hyperpigmentation and um, more problem solution. But it's also something I'm very I'm very delicate to that because I feel like I am only where I am today because of the support of this audience of, you know, women of color. And the last thing that I want to do is ever look like, you know, oh, we've made it big and now we're just like, you know, for everybody brand. Like I am somebody who has a lot of loyalty to like, I know why I am where I am today. And is that is because of the support of my, you know, historical consumer base. Tell me more about that because that is a tricky line to walk. We see that a lot in the hair care aisle, you know, brands that are for curly hair or textured hair, uh, saying they're for everyone and then people feeling disenfranchised from that brand. So how do you kind of walk that line, you know, in communications, in talking to your customer in retail, like at Ulta or Target um, and on your own site? Because, you know, it's very quick. Consumers are very quick to say, oh, you know, this brand is no longer for me or this brand has jumped ship. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy in a little bit. You have to go with your gut instincts. I mean, we've been working on the evolution of our brand book, you know, from a creative content standpoint, a lot over the last six months. And, you know, I was getting a lot of push on kind of like even tone for everyone. And I don't know, everyone just as inclusive as it sounded. It also sounded so diluted. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, um, so I ended up sticking with the whole even tone experts, but it is a little bit of a formula of even like how we show up in photography. It's like, I mean, I will sit there with my team and be like, okay, like if we have this many models, this is what we need to represent. If it goes to four models, this is what we need to represent. Our mix on social media needs to be this. Like, I mean, there is a bit of a formula to ensuring that we look inclusive, but at this in, in attract customer, new customers to our company, because I mean, anybody thinking that I don't need to grow my brand is 
obviously not an entrepreneur or CEO. I mean, I need to bring, grow brand awareness, grow new customers into our brand. Um, And so I'm trying to appeal, you know, how can I appeal to a more Gen Z audience? How can I appeal to people who think that, you know, we only cater to deeper skin tones, but at the same time, be very clear, especially through UGC. I mean, all of our UGC is mostly, you know, our customer base who has melanin-rich skin, and we want to show that off. Like, we want to say these are all the customers getting great results. So it's a little formulaic to a degree. I'm not sure if that exactly answered your question. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of brands struggle with this, you know, there is a quota to fill in marketing materials and communications about how many men versus women versus non-binary people are in campaigns, um, how many Black, Asian, Indian, Native American, white women are in campaigns. And I think that, unfortunately, we haven't come to a place in the beauty industry where um, it is just people, if it's for everyone, and at the same time, people don't have to be skeptical or worried about if they are included or if they're represented. Totally. Speaking of social media though, Rachel, you know, it seems like you guys have had immense success there, especially recently on TikTok. Last year, you had an incredibly powerful viral TikTok moment that came from an unpaid influencer, unpaid fan of the brand that doubled your business. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and, and what you've seen since? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was... Gosh, it's been about two years ago now. Um, but we just one day at the office, my head of e-com was like, who posted for us? Do you get one of your celebrity clients to post? Like our sales are like triple what they should be at noon. And I'm like, no, like I checked everything, see who tagged our Instagram. Um And then this girl ended up emailing us and she was like, hey, just wanted to let you know, I posted this on my TikTok and it's now at like a million views and, um, you know, just wanted you guys to be aware. And we were not on TikTok at this point as a company, um, this is over two years ago. And we, she was not somebody with a big following. She had like 7,000 followers maybe. And she had posted this before and after picture using our even tone cleansing bar. She had used hashtag three week clear skin challenge. And, um, she even, I think mentioned she got the product from her mom's bathroom. She thinks she, her mom got it from Sephora. We didn't even sell the product at Sephora. And it really has been a wild ride since even to this day, the, positive and negative effects of that moment on my brand, um, I think will, has forever changed our brand, you know, and has given me a lot of life lessons as a leader, as a CEO, um, on what I would do if it happened again, you know? How do you kind of prepare for those moments? Because, you know, TikTok moments or any sort of viral moments are incredible, but they are, you know, flash in the pans. If you think about it, you know, they, they can, you can't replicate it is what I'm trying to say. You can might, you might be able to get smaller moments or, you know, even bigger moments, but it's not something you can necessarily prepare for or create well, out I, of nowhere. I don't know if my investors would have necessarily expected um, that it wouldn't be duplicated again. So that has been an interesting um, ride just in terms of forecasting and demand planning. You know, 
I, it definitely, you can't prepare for it. I mean, now I think, luckily our customer service team was something that I had done a really good job building out. We had kept it in house. A lot of my customer service agents are estheticians. Um, So in terms of being able to talk to consumers through um, our Instagram channel and our own personal like DTC channel, like live chat, I think we did do a really good job of. We were not able to really pivot on TikTok as fast as I wanted us to. I mean, it was just like so embarrassing looking back. I mean, I had a team of about 17 to 20. And I remember sitting around this conference room table and we're like, setting up our TikTok page and like, what the hell do we do with this page? And like coming up with the content strategy. And it was all just in such real time. And we are not a Gen Z company and we not even from a really a workforce standpoint. I mean, we're very millennial. We have reflected who our customer is. I would say we are very like 25 to 40 at our company. And so we didn't catch on with TikTok as fast as I wanted to, but I pushed the team really, really hard to, you know, meet the demand of this. And I think looking back I don't know if I regret how hard I pushed the team. I just, I do have regrets about how I handled TikTok. And I think that looking back on it, you have to accept that you can't fully rise to that occasion. And I really invested in a large workforce. Like we almost doubled in size. Cause I'm talking about like our sales tr- like tripled overnight. And, you know, from that day, our company is twice as big as we are, as we became from that TikTok moment. And then a couple months later, the pandemic hit, which we all know, you know, just from, you know, how low the cost of digital advertising, you know, got, we really like capital kind of capitalized on that. So there's this three month period where just the company grew so much. And I just don't think I evaluated how sustainable it all was. And so when you are hiring that fast and that furious and you're doing demand planning and you just, I, don't think I fully evaluated one, the customer base, you know, this cohort that became this new customer for us did not have the same retention that our core customer had. These were not mostly people who had melanin rich skin. These were people who didn't completely suffer from post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, the type of hyperpigmentation we suffered from. This was a lot of very young kids dealing with acne, all buying the same exact product that was for hyperpigmentation. I want to be like, we have a cleanser for acne. Can you buy this one, you know? And so again, just looking back, if I ever had the chance again, yes, I mean, I would do what I could to definitely try to meet demand to a degree, but I would also be more realistic about like how sustainable is this really for that long? You know, this is so interesting that you're sharing this, Rachel, because I think a lot of people don't share the kind of pitfalls of this kind of success. Because you are talking a lot about, you know, it was an amazing viral moment. 
you pushed the team, you grew kind of at all costs for a minute. And now you're seeing, wait, things are kind of leveling out. But at the same time, your investors are expecting that kind of virality and that kind of success again. How do you kind of negotiate that? How do you say that this isn't this isn't this is unusual? I mean, in all fairness to them, the type of numbers that came out of that, I don't think that they expect a duplication of that. But we have had other mini viral moments, like with our body collection, you know, where you've seen you know huge increases of demand um, in a month because of some post on TikTok that got five million views with our, you know even tone body cleansing bar or or smoothing body treatment. And so we have had in board meetings, you know, really having to educate like this moment, do you know the earned media value that is behind this moment? That's not in our budget. You know what I mean? Like, and so unless we are guaranteed to have the budget to invest in making something like this happen, like buying that, you know, we really, it's just a guess, you know, and I think it's been hard on me and I've been hard on my team to a degree of just, you get used to that type of growth. And when you do start to level off, um, during a time like right now, where there's a lot of reasons people are leveling off right now, um, it just, I don't know. It it doesn't feel that good. So I'm having to give myself a lot of talks like this isn't realistic, you know, and you can't grow 300% month after month. You know, that's not the way to measure your brand success. You know, other ways that I need to measure my brand success is the IRI data that I see that, you know, the five other multicultural clinical brands at Target, we are totally outselling them. You could combine their numbers all together and our numbers are still bigger than that, you know, or look at the fact that we, over 50% of new customers come back and buy a second product, you know, within four weeks, you know, those are things that really make for longevity. Um, But it's, it's been a little bit emotionally rocky at times. On that note, Rachel, you know, you're, you're going on maternity leave, you know, you're launching a brand new product that kind of is resetting the, the cleansing beauty routine category. You know, you're bringing, introducing something that like not a lot of other people have in their regimens when it comes to other brands or other consumers. So how do you feel about, you know, the next six months, the next nine months, how do you feel about the place the brand is in and where you want it to go? I feel that we are in a good place. I have an amazing senior leadership team, probably the best that I've ever had in the last three, four years, which I'm so thankful for. Um, I think it's a year for us of really just tightening things up. So if we did ever get another moment, like, you know, we, there's some things that might not be as hard for us to capitalize on um as well as we have a large skew offering I mean another thing that people just don't talk about which could be a whole nother podcast is when you get the opportunity to go to retail it is very easy to feel like you have to say yes to everything you know you can have the nicest buyer in the world but it's just this like 
this, I don't know, it's like the doorman at the club, you know, you just feel like there's this power over you and you don't feel comfortable saying no. And retailers want newness. They want it a lot. And anytime a SKU falls below a certain performance level, if you don't have something to replace it, you can lose that shelf space. It really put a lot of pressure on my company from an innovation standpoint. And a lot of new products were created over the last three years. And so I think, you know, I'm finally at a place where it's just like, I am having to really slow down our product development pipeline. I mean, we have some great things we've created, you know, when I will choose to pull them out, I think will really depend on, um, just the company's bandwidth, you know, the environment that we're in, it's really expensive to create new products. You know, we have so many great new, like existing ones. I really want to concentrate on that where I have almost 40 products, you know, and I think that it's just so easy in this really, really competitive environment the last two years. It's just like everybody sat back and was like, wow, beauty is beauty is doing it so everybody wanted in on in on it after you know the pandemic started and so it's so easy to get caught up in like the glitz and glam of like the PR look at this new product and this new launch and this new line and like you know as a founder you don't want to get left behind but you also have to stay true to your company's roots and I know that we damn near have everything that you need to correct hyperpigmentation. And so I just need to concentrate on making sure that that is clear. And I grow my customer base with my current selection is, I mean, we still plan to have a new product in 2023, but there was moments, I think last year we launched like six. That's, that is hard on a brand, especially a brand our size. We're still relatively small. And Rachel, although you are a smaller brand or considered an indie brand in the larger beauty landscape, you are hitting about $30 million in sales. Are you thinking about selling? Are you thinking about exiting and who the right partner could be, whether it's private equity or or conglomerates to take your brand to the next level? Well, you know, I never want to say never. I didn't necessarily start this brand to be a family brand. Like I have a daughter who's 10 and I want her to be whatever she wants to be in life, not, you know, to take over the legacy of Urban Skinner X, as well as there's a lot of things that I want to do, want this brand to do that I'm not entirely sure that I'm the right person or we currently have the right resources to make it live up to its potential. I mean, I think about this brand on a global scale. Um, I think about the accessibility, which is so important to me. I mean, that's so much about the mission of the brand. And that's why I went from being a prestige only price point brand from my med spot to really ensuring I was creating products under $25 because I wanted, you know, people to have access to great formulas. Um, So I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like it kind of did. So it's the, the optionality is still there. Optionality is still there. You know, it it would be a process where I really want to, I've learned so much. I've made so many, I don't want to say mistakes. I want to say experiences that I really would ensure that, um, you know, the brand 
would be, you know, have the ability to have a very great long life. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel. I can't believe you're doing this while you're dilated, but we so appreciate you and your conversation today. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.